What does it sound like when a childhood dream comes true? For Esteban Ocon, it sounded like this. This outpouring of emotion was about more than his first Grand Prix victory. Yes, guys. <laughs> it was about the sacrifices that got Esteban to Formula One. His parents sold their home to fund his junior racing career. Wow, 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 wow. He just won the Hungarian Grand Prix. Well done, mate. Allez, Alpine. Allez, les bleus. Yes, yes. It was about the year he spent on the sidelines in 2019 after losing his race seat with no guarantee that he'd ever race in Formula One again. That was quite a big hit. And I remember, you know, leaving the Melbourne track, going into the rental car and and I cried uh, in the parking lot. I was uh, more hungry than ever to get back racing. Ocon's gone from tears of frustration to tears of joy as a race winner with Alpine. The time between those two emotional extremes taught him a lot. I'm Tom Clarkson, and when I sat down with Esteban for his second appearance on Beyond the Grid, I was talking to a driver who felt wiser, more settled and faster. A driver who wants to get to the very top. My aim is to be world champion one day. I'm not here to sit around and and just participate to the race. No, what I want is to create more memories like we got that win in Budapest. You'll hear Esteban talk about the end of his time at Force India, his year with Mercedes as a reserve driver, wheel-to-wheel racing with Sergio Perez and Fernando Alonso, that incredible race win in Hungary, the drivers he calls friends, and why he treats the Spanish Grand Prix as a home race. Esteban slows down and opens up about it all. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Esteban, welcome back to F1 Beyond the Grid. Thank you very much. Now, a lot has happened since you were last on the show. You've changed teams a couple of times, but most significantly, you're now a Grand Prix winner. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's, uh, it's a bit crazy yeah, to, to say, but, uh, but yeah, one, you know, ticking the box is done. Uh, I've, now, I've now won a race, uh, which is uh, obviously a part of, of the dream and a part of where I want to get to. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's awesome. Um, thanks for welcoming me on the show. I'm sure we are going to be able to, to speak about uh, a lot of things that ha- well, has happened. There's been a lot of water under the bridge, <laughs> hasn't there? But just to reflect a little bit more on that, that great day in Hungary for you. How clinical did you have to be that day? You had Vettel yeah. on your gearbox for pretty much the whole race. Just when you reflect on it now, how good a performance was it? Yeah, it, it was um, it was definitely a tough one and one that uh, I would have liked to, you know, make it uh, feel quicker. You know, the race was so long from from where I was in the lead. I just wanted uh, to to go to through the checkered flag, but uh, yeah, Seb was putting a lot of pressure. That's clear. Um, you know, every lap he was trying to, you know, make a fake dive on the inside and trying to get the win. But you know, more importantly, I think at the time, um, you know, we were going through. You know, a little bit of a difficult times, you know, it was not working how we wanted it. And we found an issue on the car just uh, prior to Silverstone, so the race before. And uh, and things were starting to, to work well again. You know, we qualified well, we had pace in the race and we got that win, you know. So it's not only a pure win, I think it's more than that. It's it's really, you know, the trust that the team has put in in me, you know, by finding the problem we had. And, you know, we got the reward in the end, thanks to that. Do you feel it cemented your relationship with the team? I think so, yeah. I think um, I think they can 
you know, count on me more. They realize that they can count on me on, on times that opportunity comes, that I can be there, you know, when, uh, when it's needed. And I've proved that now in, in a couple of occasions. And I'm very happy that it's working well with, uh, with the team I have around me. And as a Frenchman, to be on the front page of L'Equipe on the Monday morning, yeah, that's a big deal, particularly, actually, as it was the Olympics and you knocked all of the Olympics. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> I'm very sorry for them. But yeah, no, it's amazing for sure. I remember uh, seeing the, the first page of L'Equipe, some, you know, iconic uh, ones where the French, the French team won the World Cup, uh, you know, in 98, for example. They were on the first page, you know, to be to be there on, on that page is, uh, yeah, it's something that you get with, with success, I guess. But, um, you know, for me, the most important is the track action. Uh, I don't look so much on the outside stuff, but for sure, uh, that was pretty cool. You've already spoken about what that win did for you and the team. I did also want you to reflect on your journey to this point in your life, because... Some of our listeners may not be aware of the sacrifices that your family made to yeah. keep you on the racetrack when you were a young kid. And did this feel like payback to mum and dad as well? Yeah, a little bit for sure. I think in a way the first payback was to already come back in Formula One. Um, you know, from the last podcast we did, um, you know, it was not certain at the time that I was not going to have a drive in 2019, but, you know, already to come back in 2020. Uh, that was one, you know, special moment, and uh, we were all proud uh, of that. Getting the first podium in Bahrain was, um, was, you know, just excitement, happiness, and you know, a small, uh, you know, box ticked. Um, but yeah, the big one for sure in in Budapest. Yeah, I called my parents straight away. Um, oh, so were mum and dad not at the Hungary? They were not. No, oh, no. <laughs> no, no, they were not. And you know, it was still quite, you know, big COVID times, and you know, there was. Uh, people started to come back in uh, the paddock but no I was uh, pretty much alone with of course my team I mean yeah I called them on on FaceTime directly so they were having a glass of champagne for me and yeah that made uh, the world for me. You mentioned 2018 and Force India and because that was the last time uh, of course you were on the pod but that moment when the team was put into administration we're talking mid 2018 now just how tough a moment was that, you know, as a young driver trying to establish yourself at the pinnacle of motorsport? Yeah, very tough. Um, and it was not the first time uh, that this was uh, happening to me. Um, you know, I was part of the team in, in Lotus when it was very difficult. So the Enstone family where, um, you know, the shipping were not arriving on the track at the right time. Uh, I was, you know, at, with Mano uh, back in... In 2016, when, you know, the team um, bankrupt at the end of the year, unfortunately, and uh, and 2018 again. So, yeah, I've been through a lot in my short career at the moment. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was just trying to, to do the best for, for the team, trying to get as much uh, points as I could, uh, trying to get the team as high up as I could. And by that, you know, I was hoping that the team could survive. And in the end, I mean... I think the guys are, are happy with, you know, the situation, how it is now. But for sure, yeah, there was there was some high pressures that, you know, I was trying to get rid of and try to perform on track. And was there pressure on you in the lead up to that administration not to crash because there were no spare parts? And, and how did that affect you in the cockpit and, and, and your approach to each on track session? Yeah, I think it has um, it has 
you know, forged me as a driver. Last year, for example, in 2021, we uh, we were the team that, you know, had the, the less touches or the less crashes. So we were the, the team that uh, got the less expenses um, in terms of spare parts. And uh, that probably comes from that, you know, not being able to do any mistakes, you know, just building the weekends. Yeah, I knew it could have been big trouble, but I was guided by, you know, the right people at the time, uh, Otma, which is a uh, great that we work again uh, together here um, the world is small in, in motorsport and in formula one so so that's fantastic but yeah i mean we we definitely had big pressure on our shoulders but i think we did pretty well for how the situation was that's otmar safnauer team principal now at alpine were you impressed with how otmar dealt with that whole horrible situation in 2018 yeah very impressed very impressed i think it must have been harder for him than for me uh, to be fair, you know, I was trying to, to perform on the track, but he had all, you know, the, the bad side to, to deal with, uh, for sure. So Lawrence Stroll takes over the team. The moment he took over, could you see the writing on the wall? Did it look to you as if Lance Stroll was coming in and you were going to have to look elsewhere for a drive in 2019? Yeah, that was um, that was always the plan. There was no surprises, um, you know. On that side, uh, Lance was um, was supposed to, you know, replace me at the team, but we had options um, to choose from two teams. Not gonna say which ones, but uh, we had um, opportunities that we didn't manage to put together for diverse political reasons, which I got pretty disappointed about because at the time, you know, it was not for for result that we failed uh, in that regard. But, you know, what led, you know, from there, you know, failing into securing a seat, uh, I think I did learn a lot anyway in 2019, joining Mercedes as, a, as the river, re, reserve role. You know, they had plenty to, to offer uh, to me, big um, duties, and we dominated 2019. You know, I was working in, uh, in the sideline, in the cave, you know, at night uh, and then traveling to the track, but I was part of that and, um, and I was special. Has the politics in Formula One surprised you? Um, yes, I didn't know it could go that far, uh, clearly. But I guess in all you know, big sports, uh, it must be like that. On all big businesses, it must be like that. And you know, the part of me that knows the job is is to drive. Um, you know, to to get that car, you know, as fast as it can go. But I didn't know I was not as prepared, um, you know, to to learn all the outside aspect, which I know well now. Um, and uh, yeah, I've promised myself that uh, this would not happen anymore. Esteban, what was your frame of mind going into 2019? You're a racing driver who was unable to race that year. How tough was it? It was definitely tough and I had some uh, very, you know, low moments uh, mentally. Um, I think I will remember that one from Australia. Got there at the first race in 2019 and we were, you know, supposed to have quite a big, you know, test program. So I was supposed to drive the car quite a bit. And when I got to uh, Australia, I got told that uh, I was not going to drive the car for the next six months. The next test was going to be in six months time. Why? Uh, because, you know, that's how it was planned. And, and unfortunately, the days reduced uh, for some reason for, for budget purposes and, and all that, which is, 
you know, completely understandable. The most important is definitely to to run the race team and to keep, um, you know, all all the money for, for that. But, uh, but yeah, that was quite a big hit. And I remember, you know, leaving the Melbourne track, going into the rental car and, and I cried uh, in the parking lot. Yeah, so it was it was definitely a lot of low moments. Um, Can I say Australia is a really bad place to get bad news because with the jet lag, you're lying awake at night yeah, and your mind doesn't stop, does it? And I'm exactly. Guessing. Yeah, I mean, I don't have much problem to sleep, but I remember that night that was not not uh, not the best sleep. But did the team still embrace you, even though you weren't able to physically drive the real car? Did you still feel a a full on member of that team, if you like? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was very you know well looked after. You know, from James Valls, from. Uh, uh, Toto uh, from Gwen Lagru, um, you know, they were looking after me and trying to find solutions. And Toto was quite clear, and he said, you know, you will drive in 2020. And I said, how how can you be so sure, Toto? You know, um, and he said, you will see. Did you believe him at the time? I didn't want to believe him because <laughs> I didn't want to be disappointed. But you know, it's been quite a few times that when he spoke about something, it actually happened, and uh, and it did happen again. You know, I got uh, I got to drive in 2020. Not in Mercedes, but in Renault. And that was, yeah, the start of something new for me. There were a lot of rumours mid-season 2019 that you were going to replace Valtteri Bottas at the team in 2020. How close do you reckon you got? I don't know, you know, how close uh, how close that, that was. Um, what I know is that I was very proud of my choice uh, in the end of, of going to Renault and to to race with um, with the team that I've grew up with uh, in the end in Enstone for for so many years, you know, I've joined the team uh, back in 2011 when I was still in go-kart. I was training there at their facilities, you know, just seeing the, the F1 drivers being there and, and dreaming of one day, one day, you know, being one of the two drivers. And, you know, I've joined that team and uh, we've created, you know, great memories. I have a win. I have a, a second place finish in Bahrain, you know, many great memories and uh, we hope to create many more. We're going to come on to that in a minute. But just a couple more questions about Mercedes. What impressed you about that team? What impressed me about that, that team is how you know, calm they were, how prepared, uh, how much they knew their subject, um, basically. And, um, and the dedication we, you know, on my side, how much work I've put in, it was, it was amazing. I mean, I've never done that many laps in, the, in a simulator uh, before a race weekend. We are doing like, 230 laps in Red Bull Ring before before the weekend, you know, from uh, six in the evening to four uh, in the morning, and then I was flying to to the to the track. It was dedication and hard work, and it was paying off. And in all the departments, that's how things were working. People would think, you know, it's very robotic from the outside, and they 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 were seeing a domination uh, clearly, but it was not like that at all. There was a lot of debate, a lot of uh, question marks and you know when there was a failure people were actually thinking oh we need to change uh, you know this thing to make it work um it was not you know straightforward and you go and win races not at all but yeah just very impressed of how well the subject was executed and lewis hamilton what is his standout quality apart from his speed apart from his speed yeah his raw talent which is which is very clear i think it's the ability to switch from one thing to another. For example, you will have commitment here, there, um, is running the whole day, uh, basically. But 
what's what's difficult to do is coming back from a commitment and straight away you know go to the point with the engineers and point out where the issues are and what we need to change to go faster in the next session as soon as he was sitting on that chair he has his uh, little notes and he could go you know through what he needed to go faster straight away you know he didn't need to you know have time to refocus you know refresh or whatever uh he's not losing time you know it's it's straight to the point you know we need to do this this and that and boom paul purple purple <laughs> paul <laughs> yeah <laughs> Given that, I mean, you did do a couple of tests for them in the end, didn't you, during did, the yeah. year? But yeah. do you think, although you weren't racing, somehow you became a better racing driver in 2019? For sure. And and as I said, I could learn more about the dark side of Formula One, if you know what I mean. And yeah, and all the rest of it, you know, I could focus more on on the contractual side of things and, and you know, just dealing with what I was not capable in in the past you know, and what probably uh, we missed out on, basically. So, you know, I had more time to focus on, on different things more than the actual performance on the track. And I think it was a very good year for, for that for me. And it has made me a more complete driver, that is clear. And what was it like watching the races? Where, where would you watch the races? Were you in the hospitality? Did you do any TV punditry? What I did a few, yeah. I did a few, and um, the TV bit. Yeah, I did a few TV bit for did sure. You, did you enjoy that? Uh, I prefer to be racing, <laughs> I have to say. But uh, yeah, new experience. I mean, it can only make you make you better uh, as a person. So yeah, I was pretty pretty happy to to learn that uh, as well. But no, I was listening to everything, and I took quite a bit on board uh, as well. You know, to um, to my new team, uh, to Renault. Um, you know, with the acceptation of uh, of uh, of Mercedes at the time, but uh, yeah, I I was uh, you know taking Lewis' way of writing everything down and uh, and to be to be prepared uh, for for the future. But yeah, I was next to Toto sometimes, um, mostly next to tire department, um, you know, at the central pit of the garage. No, they, when there was a car firing up, I was not in hospitality, I tell you, drinking pina coladas. <laughs> not at all. I was uh, I was there working and, and you know, I was uh, more hungry than ever uh, to, to get back racing. And how similar is what you found at Enstone to what there was at Brackley, the Mercedes home? There's, there's always differences in between teams. Um, and for sure, more uncertainty, you know, when I join Enstone on quite a lot of, of, of things, for sure. Um, you know, when you have a team winning and dominating, when you go to a team which, you know, is not dominating and which is, you know, coming up its way, there's a lot of question that, you know, I was very pleased to um, answers. Uh, I didn't have all the answers, clearly. Um, and at the end, you know, I was doing a lot less sim uh, towards the end of the year and a lot less preparation for the following year, which is normal. So, uh, yeah, the team Merck was cutting little bit things because uh, they knew then I would uh, I would have probably too much information, which is normal. But yeah, I, I gave as much as I could uh, straight away to uh, for us to be ready. And in 2020, the car was, was competitive. And does Alpine, was obviously Renault in 2020, but Alpine now, does it have everything it needs to get the job done in Formula One. I think we do, yeah. And um, I would not be here if I didn't trust that. Um, you know, my aim is to be a world champion one day. I'm not here to sit around and, and just participate to the race. I, I mean, for that, it doesn't matter to me. 
um, no, what I want is is you know to create more memories. Like we got that win in Budapest, that uh, you know podium in Bahrain, that podium in Qatar with Fernando. Um, I mean, if you ask Fernando, he will be the same. You know, he's gonna say, yeah, that is the ambitions of Laurent Rossi. That is the ambitions of Luca De Meo. Uh, you know, the and and Otmar Zafnau as well. You know, all the bosses from the team they share those ambitions and they want to you know, progress and get to the top. And it's not the same in every team. And yeah, I'm fully on board with that project. And is it that ambition that helped you, in effect, not sign your life away, but you've got a long-term deal with this team now until the end of 24, which showed a lot of faith on your part. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, when Laurent joined the team with, with Luca, straight away we had a, a good conversation about that. You know, what's what's the 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 aim of the team what do they want to achieve uh, you know in the future um what do you want to get to and yeah his answer was you know i'm a competitor and i want to win as much as you do i said you sure you sure Laurent? because you know <laughs> I, you know that's not a, a light phrase you know and then i played squash with him you know i straight away thought okay i can trust this man you know he's more than a competitor i almost broke my arm playing <laughs> with him and i lost so so i can tell you that yeah he wants to win at all cost yeah and i and he's a good paddle player as well, well he's, he's just a good yeah, racket sports he, player he's, isn't a, he's a very good sportsman in general and he has the spirit i'm slightly taking this in chronological order because you sign for Renault for the 2020 season but then of course the world get struck by yeah. the, the, this virus and suddenly yeah. you're not racing again now I know. everybody in the world is struggling with the virus but how frustrating was it for you to have to wait another six months before you can get racing again very frustrating um what did you do i've tried to to you know keep sharp uh, keep training keep racing you know sim sim racing uh, in different sim racing categories and all that this is all good but it's not the best preparation yeah, you can have. Um, you know, the best is to be on track. And and yeah, it felt long. It felt long. Um, we were uncertain on, on when we were going to go back. And when we restarted the preparation and the knowledge that we got was not really, you know, the right one. The way we were working with my team at the time, yeah, we, we struggled, uh, I have to say, in that year just to get the car to where we wanted. Do you know why now? I know why now, yeah. I know why now, and we've changed that way of working in Abu Dhabi, basically, uh, in the last race of, of 2020 season. And uh, and straight away, you know, for the first time, I beat Daniel uh, in quali. Sorry to press you on that, but it's, yeah. it's quite interesting. Was it a setup thing, or was it just the way you communicated within your group of engineers? Or? It's, it's never one thing, but it's, it's probably a bit of both. Um, you know, there's a lot of experience you know from one side and and a lot of you know inexperience with that car uh, on the other side with my side and uh, and how to get you know the best things uh, all together is is tricky and we've you know struggled to put the car as i would like to and to put the car as optimum um, for the lap time and um, and we had it under our nose really because you know daniel was um, performing uh, very well uh, in that year, we were you know fast in the race, but you know once we we've inspired ourselves from from that a bit more and and put the pride on one side, um, it definitely worked better and uh, and that's what we carried in 2021. If I were your teammate and I was looking at your data after let's say that quali lap in 
Abu Dhabi 2020 or quite frankly any race last year and you've still got that momentum now but what do you think is your greatest quality when it comes to extracting lap time from a car I think it's it's probably you know to um, to unleash you know the how how can I phrase that you know you build a weekend you start you know not 100% in FP1 and you get to that level only in Q3 and I think really pushing 100% comes you know, when you need to in Q3. So I will get the maximum knowledge, the maximum uh, benefit from, from the track, how much it improves, and I will get closer to the walls when it matters. You know, there's a lot of times that this helped me in my career. And yeah, not to do a mistake and getting there at the time that it matters um, is probably my best quality. And is that a confidence thing? Definitely. Keep your powder dry. You don't have to impress people in FP1. Wait till qualifying. It's that. I hope I hope it's the quality. <laughs> you, you tell me, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I I think it is, and especially on street circuits, we are racing a lot more on street circuits now. Are you last of the late breakers? Do you have? I mean, everyone tells me that if you look at Fernando Alonso's data, he's he has a very sharp turn yeah. in. For example, mm. is there a standout thing? If I was looking at your data, I would say my strong point is probably the high speed corners it's very rare when i see you know one of my teammates being faster in, in a high speed corner uh, in general brave um, boy well i don't know maybe <laughs> mad mad boy, mad boy. <laughs> yeah maybe um yeah i have a good car control in 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 those high speed corners unfortunately is when it's not where you gain most of the time it's more in the slow speed corner where you gain the time that's the sort of frustrating yeah, thing about formula one and almost the is. contradiction isn't <laughs> yeah. it yeah but uh but no in in the end um you know when you are in formula one when you are against the best like uh, daniel or fernando i mean these guys are on the edge of the car pretty much everywhere you know it's there's not one place where they will break 10 meters too early uh, you know, you figured out in the in the second lap. So so yeah, you learn the more you go through your career, and if you have different teammates. Um, but definitely, yeah, that 2020 year, if I come back to it, was you know a big learning curve for me on how to get you know one car working. Um, there's not one way. You know, the Merc was working one direction, the Force India was working one direction, but the Renault was completely different, and that's where we probably got it wrong for most of the year. Let's now go on to 21, where. I think you finished 14 of the 22 races in the points. You had huge consistency there. Another strong point. Thank you. Yeah. Um, again, you know, the important is to finish races uh, in the end. And, you know, that's... I think I, I had one record for that from when I got rookie. Uh, I did 24, 25 races finishing uh, in a row. So... It's not the most attractive record, I have to say. It's a bit boring, but um, but no, it's good to to bring the car to the finish. And yeah, I mean, I probably learned that from uh, from my junior days, where you know I was always in the points, always on the podium, not necessarily winning races, but that's how I won the title in the end. And what you remember is is in the end is who won the title, not who won uh, this race. Uh, in or that how year, they won it. Or how they won it. You yeah. know, you've won the race or you won the title, that's it. And um, and yeah, I've learned that from, from the past. So yeah, that's a good, good thing I remember. Can we just have a few words on Fernando Alonso? For sure. Is being teammate to Fernando as brutal as some people will have you believe? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. Um, and uh, and yeah, I got told that a lot by a lot of people in the paddock, you know, 
um, be careful, you know, Fernando is tough with his teammates and, you know, he plays mind games and, and all these type of things. And I thought, let's see, you know, I want to, to make um, my own judgment. And, and when he came in, uh, I remember probably the first time was, was Imola and he was just listening, just being, you know, there and not really giving his opinion uh, at the time. He had his, you know, test role. Um, he was doing a lot of testing and I was just trying to, to learn and see how, how things were, were going with him. And, uh, and now when, when he joined, um, you know, we have a lot in common, I realized. You're half Spanish? Well, I'm half Spanish, <laughs> Is that what full Spanish. No, that's not the whole whole things in common. But yeah, we we both, I, I, know, I don't know how much the others, you know, like cars and racing in general, but I think we both love racing more than any others uh, in here. And, you know, he's proving it by what he does. You know, he's won two titles. Uh, he's won the most prestigious races uh, in the world and he still comes back in Formula One, you know, gives his, his everything on the track and he's still as fast as he was. So, you know, all our life is about racing, you know, everything that, that he does is about racing and everything that I do is about racing. So it can sound a bit boring like that. We don't have much outside interest uh, apart from that, but... Can you have a laugh with him? Yeah, we can. Yeah, he's a very funny guy. Very funny guy and we have a lot of great uh, banter together but uh, but yeah I'm, I'm very happy to be to be his teammate um, it's an honor uh, to be to be working alongside him and you know it's great that we push each other so much because you know that that brings the team to a level that probably we didn't have in the past now you've had some pretty close dices with him this year and I did want to ask how different is going wheel to wheel with Fernando as a teammate to Sergio Perez back in the Back in the Force <laughs> India days, because it. <laughs> I know why you it want got, to go there. Well, no, just, not it, a nice question, there, Tom. <laughs> well, it got pretty spicy. It, at least yeah. it looked like it did yeah. with Checo. Yeah. Is is this different with Fernando? It's very different. Um, it's very different. We with Checo, it was close, but um, yeah, we we didn't complete the races, <laughs> so it went to the point where it was too close. You know, with Fernando, when we race. You know, it never gets to the point that um, we damage anything or, you know, we know how far we can push it. And we've done that in Jeddah, we've done that in Zonvoort, uh, we've done that in different races. And it's going to be close the whole time, uh, for sure. Um, but, you know, we are one-tenth difference, less than a tenth. We were two thousands in Zonvoort uh, last year, which is unbelievable. He got a gust of wind and just got behind me in quality. How does that translate on the track? Is it like sort of, I don't know, <laughs> centimeters? Yeah, millimeters. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how much that can be. But but yeah, literally, yeah, it's it's so close that we will get close on the track. But, you know, the team let us race. They are they trust us. And, you know, I, I take care of that as well because I know the trust they put in us. And, you know, I'm careful when I race Fernando. Uh, it will be close, but it will be, you know, control, in control. Mark Webber told me once that Fernando is one of the few guys out there where he, you can completely trust him. I don't know if you remember uh, Mark went round the outside of Fernando going into Eau Rouge in yeah. 2011. I was remember, it? yeah. And I, he said, there's only one guy I could have done that with, mm. and that was Fernando Alonso. He's tough, but he knows when when to stop. When yeah. to stop. Yeah, exactly. And is that your experience? That is that is my experience. Clearly, um, I remember racing when he was in McLaren. I was at Force India. I always had great battles with him. 
and we were close, uh, but it was always fair and, and good racing. So, yeah, I, I know I can trust him on that side. So, Fernando's full Spanish. Yes. You're half Spanish. Yeah. Spanish Grand Prix coming up this yeah. weekend. Does it feel like a home Grand Prix? It is. It brings out the Espanol in you? Yes. Yes. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, I have a good part of my family from my dad's side that that lives in um, next to the circuit, you know, in uh, next to Montmelo. So, yeah, I feel like it is... You know, a little bit of a, of a home Grand Prix. I've spent a lot of time there racing, uh, of course. But, you know, I have Spanish origin from, you know, the south of Spain. But my most of my family now are around Barcelona. So, How many people have asked you for tickets? <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. We can, we can get that, no problem. <laughs> but no, it's, um, I'm less Spanish than Fernando, that is clear. But um, yeah, half of me is definitely, you know, with the, with the hot blood. So look, let's finish. It's been a wonderful chat. Thank you so much. But Pleasure can we just finish this, just looking at the rest of this season now? Alpine is looking very sharp this year. You've got upgrades coming. What can you achieve in 2022? We, I think, are quite competitive this year, much more than we were on the, on, on the previous years. Um, if we get the car to where we want, I mean, we've qualified in the top five already for half of the races that we've been you know, taking part of. Um, I've scored each time that I, you know, didn't have a problem. Um, so we only had an issue once with the gearbox. That's the only time I didn't score. Otherwise, we are always there. And if we can unlock a little bit more potential, we can, you know, get close to, to that top four. Um, and that's when starts get interesting. That's when, you know, racing gets interesting. If you don't win a race, would it be a disappointment now? Because obviously you've achieved that you, you've experienced that elation now what do you mean if i don't get a win a race in the future yeah this year sorry this, uh, this year yeah yeah well this year we know we're not going to win the title so you know if we can get some some podiums and some more top five that would be good but you know the big the big uh, push is for you know the the coming years in the future you know it's good to win a race it's good to be on the podium um we want to be a lot more on that you know regularly to be scoring, you know, the big box. And uh, yeah, that's the aim. That's what we want to push. And, and I'm sure, you know, we have that. Uh, there is the DNA, you know, of that 2005, 2006. That's what Fernando says all the time. When we go to Viri and when we go to Enstone, there is that DNA that, you know, the team is capable of winning races. We just need to unlock the potential and, and get it done. And how do you find these 2022 cars? Do they suit? your driving style do you, do you, the fact they're a bit heavier a bit bigger is yeah. that is that an issue for you it's not an issue it's something that i i needed to get used to again um it's definitely a different philosophy for racing there's definitely a lot more of that go-kart style racing that you need you know as soon as you will lock a wheel you get overtaking in the next corner you know because you can follow so much better now so um, yeah to have a strong race car is as important as as to have a, a good quality car and that's where we still need to progress, you know, we are fast in qualifying, but we need a bit more in the race. The final thing I wanted to ask was just about who you hang out with in Formula One. I've seen some pretty cool pictures of, is it you and Mick and yeah. in particular? Um, yeah. Who Mick, would you Lance, say you're close to? Yeah, Mick and Lance, um, you know, great guys. Uh, I'm just very much enjoying, you know, spending times outside the track with them. I live very close to, to, to Mick actually. And yeah, Lance is coming to, to visit us sometimes. Uh, they came for my birthday uh, last year. Uh, we had a great dinner 
Um, yeah, I went surfing with Mick um, not too long ago. In Australia or? No, in, in Switzerland, actually. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's great to have, you know, that, that time off with them because, you know, we are going through the same, same things, but, you know, to just uh, recharge the batteries like that, it's, it's cool. But uh, yeah, it's, um, it's fun. When you get on well with a rival, does it change how you treat them on the racetrack? Um, well, unfortunately, we touched with Mick, so in the first race it was very unfortunate. Yeah, when I when I touched, um, you know, with him at the first race, I, I said to him after the race, I would have preferred for it to be somebody else. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, you, you cannot in Formula One, you cannot let that dictate. You know, racing is one thing, and then off track is another thing. That's the same for all of us. But but yeah, there's a part of me that you know think like. You know, I don't want to get in contact with Lance or Mick, uh, clearly. Could you see out your Formula One career with Alpine? I mean, it's for sure. I mean, at the moment, I have a very long contract um, where I have a big project to build. My aim is definitely to, to make that car fast. And if that car is fast and everything is working as it is now, well, there is no doubt that we would continue uh, the story, but only time will tell. Esteban, best of luck with that. Thank you very much for coming back on the show. Thank you. Pleasure. Esteban sounds very assured, confident in himself and confident in his position, both inside Alpine and within the sport. It was great to chat, Esteban. Thanks for your time and good luck for the remainder of the season. Is there another win on the horizon? Now, before I move on, if you haven't heard Esteban's first Beyond the Grid interview, it's really worth a listen. We talk much more about his route to Formula One and the sacrifices his family made. There's a link to the show in the notes for this episode. And as ever, please remember to send in any thoughts or stories you have on Esteban. I love reading them and I'll give some a shout out next week. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Gilles Villeneuve after last week's show. Let's start with this from Emily Tan. This episode made me tear up, she says. I was born in 1984, but as a Quebecois who grew up watching Formula One with my dad and brother, I heard about Gilles all the time. My dad was on Gilles' flight after he won the Canadian Grand Prix in 1978. He paid champagne for everyone. Isn't that great? Gilles Villeneuve buying champagne for everyone on the plane. Thanks very much for sending in that anecdote, Emily. It's a great story. And what about this from Tom Woolner? I've just listened to the Gilles tribute episode and I wanted to cry for everyone who knew him. What a man and what an episode. Many thanks, Tom. Really appreciate you sending that in. And what a man Gilles Villeneuve was. Now I'm going to end with this message from Jim Conlin. It's a great story. I had the privilege to see Gilles explode onto the snowmobile racing scene, says Jim. He was always committed and controversial, and I was in the stands at the Milwaukee Mile around 1974. Villeneuve had another mechanical failure on his radical twin-track rear-engine sled during the semi-final and did not qualify for the headliner final race. Everyone was disappointed, but as all the drivers lined up their snowmobiles for the standing start just moments before the green flag, Villeneuve burst out of the pits and took the last starting position. No one was sure what was going on, but before anyone could raise a question, the flag dropped and they were off. 
I honestly can't remember where Gilles finished in the race, but I remember having a great laugh with everyone else when the announcement was made that number 13 Villeneuve was disqualified because he wasn't even supposed to be out there. Now that, for me, defined Gilles forever. Thanks, Jim. What a great story. Wish I'd been there with you. And that, in a nutshell, does indeed sum up Gilles Villeneuve. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Esteban and don't forget to send in your thoughts and stories on him. I'd love it if you'd follow the show on your podcast app, leave us a rating or a review and share this episode with your fellow F1 fans. And why not check out the latest episode of F1 Nation as well? It's a preview of Esteban's home race. I'm putting that in inverted commas. At the Spanish Grand Prix with me, Natalie Pinkham, technical expert Albert Fabrega and Jolian Palmer. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audioboom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.